The discovery of penicillin is one of my favorite stories. Alexander Fleming was a scientist who kept his lab bench and work area pretty messy. When he came back to his lab after a holiday in 1928, he found that there was mold growing in a petri dish and that a substance secreted by the mold inhibited bacterial growth. And this substance, penicillin, became the life-saving drug that we know today. So while my messy room hasn't led to any life-changing discoveries yet, at least it's a good excuse to tell people that come over. I'm your host, Sarah, and you're listening to Hashtag Health, a podcast supported by the University Students' Council at Western University and the Canadian Federation of Medical Students. If you like this episode of Hashtag Health Podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts for a chance to win an Amazon gift card. New winners will be announced on the podcast and on Facebook every week. So how do we get from the amazing discovery of penicillin to the looming threat of widespread antibiotic resistance that we have today? To tell us more about this journey, we have Dr. Scott Podolsky, a family physician, historian at Harvard Medical School, and author of The Antibiotic Era, Reform, Resistance, and the Pursuit of Rational Therapeutics. My name is Scott Podolsky. I'm a primary care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. I am professor of global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I direct the Center for the History of Medicine at the Countway Medical Library. Following the discovery of penicillin, pharmaceutical companies raced to create new antibiotics and to advertise the ones that were already on the market. This was known as the golden era of antibiotics and changed the practice of medicine as we know it. There was such confidence in the pharmaceutical companies to create new antibiotics that they couldn't even sell vaccines that protected against bacterial infections. This was because the public and doctors believed that they could just use the magic bullet that could cure any of these diseases. This golden era, however, was short-lived. Resistance to antibiotics developed quickly with help from human usage of these magic bullets. Antibiotic resistance occurs when antibiotics kill off bacteria that are sensitive to the medication, but leave behind bacteria that are resistant. These bacteria not only survive, but also thrive due to natural selection. Resistance to antibiotics is a natural process and was bound to happen. However, the rate at which it's occurring is related to human overusage. So it's a, so it's a complicated Darwinian relationship between the selection factors and, and the additive resistance. But in theory, it's impossible to fully forestall resistance for the most part, given that you're having these selection pressures. Having said that, one should hope to align these selection pressures as best as you can. And this, this is the whole ethos behind stewardship and serving drugs for when they're needed. Certainly, when the I look a lot at the broad spectrum antibiotics. So this was... You had penicillin coming on the marketplace by the end of World War II, streptomycin shortly thereafter, but those were still quote-unquote narrow-spectrum drugs. And between 1948 and 1950, you had the advent of quote-unquote broad-spectrum antibiotics against gram-positives and gram-negatives. This is um, Lederle's cortetracycline, which is oreomycin. You had Park Davis had chloramphenicol, which is chloramycetin, and Pfizer had uh, oxytetracycline, which is teramycin. So this was a real quote-unquote revolution in drug efficacy but it was paralleled by a revolution in drug marketing. And so antibiotic consumption goes up like sixfold in this country over the span of eight years. Now, infectious disease did not go up 
eightfold. So, so I mean, that doesn't mean a large component of that wasn't appropriate, but a large component of that was clearly deemed at the time to be inappropriate. And people like Ernest Jadwitz, who was saying, is it too much to ask for rational therapy, said that over 90% of this was irrational. So marketing, and what happens is you then have these, during this sort of embryonic phase of antibiotic usage, you have these patterns of, okay, I have my cold, I, I got my, I went to the doctor, the doctor gave me antibiotics, I got better, therefore I got better because of the antibiotics. This pattern of receiving drugs, expecting drugs, thereafter receiving drugs, gets set in place. And so that, that and, and we're still dealing with that pattern 60 years later. So I think that the early marketing does play a role in the advent of antibiotic resistance. That doesn't mean that it wasn't going to happen eventually, but it certainly affected the pace of it. While antibiotic resistance is a pertinent issue in medicine today, it's not as new of a problem as you might have expected. Researchers started warning the public about antibiotic usage over 60 years ago. I mean, on the one hand, to frame this, there have been concerns articulated about widespread antimicrobial resistance for over 65 years. Like tonight, you'll hear quotes, cool quote from Canada from the 1940s, um, quotes from the UK from the 1950s saying, unless we change what we're doing, we're going to have a post-antibiotic era. And I'll say that one way or the other. Now, on one hand, you could look at that and say, um, here we are 65 years later, we still have antibiotics. Maybe these are all just clinical Cassandras that we don't have to worry about. The alternative way of looking at it is that, wow, people have recognized that this is a possible future for a long time, and we still haven't gotten our act together. We still have widespread inappropriate usage. We still have very thin surveillance systems. And if you look at recent data, it does, does show there's a decent amount of resistance that we really do need to consciously get our act together. It's not going to happen unless we make it a priority. So so, on the, so that's a framing of, like, on the one hand, there is widespread resistance. On the other hand, for the most part, in practice, I still can give most of my patients antibiotics that, that they do require. It does get harder for some of those patients. This is in primary care. In the ICU, it's much harder. Um, so that's a long framing to say, yeah, I think resistance would have always been here. I think resistance will always be a, a theoretical issue and, and, and a real, real, real issue. Um, what we can shape is really um, our ability to keep up with that and to make sure that, that we do that in an equitable way, that, that resistance in the developing world is considered as, as much as it is considered here in London or where I am in Boston. The reformers in the 1950s and 1960s worked to change the current usage of antibiotics, which they considered irrational, into rational therapeutics. Dr. Podolsky expands on this. So it's often juxtaposed to this, what it seemed as overenthusiasm, and those forces of overenthusiasm are often thought to be either fear or emotional thinking or commercial thinking. So often when we see people invoking a quote-unquote rational therapeutics, it's often in, in the frame of some type of counter-reform uh, effort. So Harry Markson Progress Experiment writes about this in the first decade of the 20th century when you had the FDA being formed in 1906, you had the AMA forming its Council on Pharmacy and Chemistry as a way to invoke a quote-unquote rational therapeutics, as a way of taming the therapeutic marketplace. This gets re-invoked, I, I saw in the antibiotic story, especially it happens in the 50s, too, at a sort of an overall level of prescribing, but it happens especially in the late 60s, early 70s, where you start seeing rational therapy invoked as the right drug for the right person at the right place, at the right time, at the right cost, and then some kind of implication about what are the factors of education and regulation needed to create this right rational therapy. And then I guess as an aspect to it, it's what is that grounded in? And so and it, and it, there have been various components of, of what have been considered to be the appropriate grounding for rational therapy over time. It could be mechanistic laboratory reasoning. And that was often what was happening, let's say, in the first decade of the 20th century. Or it could be 
notions of controlled clinical trials. And so certainly within the antibiotic story, they play a key role in the passage of the Kefauver-Harris amendments in the 1962 and this sort of enunciation of the randomized control trial as the arbiter of rational therapy. So it's, it's a complicated question. Yeah. Um, and, and then it's, and it, it, so it has its sort of its epistemic aspects to it. And then finally, it also has these sort of rhetorical moral aspects that this is rational therapy and we, as opposed to the marketplace or as opposed to fear and ir- irrational therapy. So it's, it ends up equating to right therapy. So how did they determine what was the rational or right therapy? As Dr. Podolsky alluded to, antibiotics played an important role in developing the randomized clinical control trials that are the mainstay of determining medication efficacy today. It helps transform the pharmaceutical industry into a very research-based industry. So Merck, Pfizer put a lot of their money back into their research base. They also start patenting, branding, marketing their own drugs. So it has a transformative effect in that respect. To the larger question around drug regulation, I feel that antibiotics have played a key role in drug regulation. So the FDA, as of the 1950s, was not explicitly adjudicating drug efficacy, right? So it gets formed in 1906, really just to show, make sure that drugs contain what their labels say they contain. You then have the passage of the 1938 Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which mandates that drugs are proved safe before interstate sale, but not explicitly that they have to be proved efficacious, although it's always sort of somewhat implicit in the evaluation. Then you have these 1950s widespread advertising antibiotics, and you have these reformers like Max Finlan, like Harry Dowling, who feel that, that this advertising is pretending some era of, of style over substance. And they start looking at ways to tame that therapeutic marketplace, and they invoke the controlled clinical trial. Um, this had been a somewhat interprofessional dialogue and then as these, there, there, there's a, a article about this in the Saturday Review at the very time when Senator Estes Kefauver, who's a liberal senator, senator from Tennessee, uh, is about to hold hearings on the pharmaceutical industry. It's originally supposed to be around drug pricing and patent concerns, but it increasingly moves to concerns with pharmaceutical marketing and the, inef- the inability of the FDA to explicitly adjudicate drug efficacy. And there's these, these hearings that happen in the Turns out the head of the FDA's Division of Antibiotics had been on the take from the pharmaceutical industry. But the Senator Kefauver's bill is about to fall off the table, and then thalidomide hits. They're forced to do some type of, of a drug bill, and they do. And while all the original patenting and pricing concerns are off the table, the mandate that the FDA needs to prove the drugs based on efficacy as determined by controlled clinical trials by qualified investigators gets written into law. And this sort of, over the next seven to eight years, gets upheld by the Supreme Court when, when some of the deems irrational drugs, getting back to that notion, are taken off the marketplace, um, becomes a crucial um, transition point in apotheosis for the controlled clinical trial in its own history. So I feel like the antibiotic story plays a key role in the evolution of the FDA. And that the FDA on the other side of the 1962-1970s of, of now has the entire structured model of phase one, two, three, four that we think of today its ability to shape and unshape the marketplace, that all derives from that era. And I would argue that antibiotics played a key role in that particular effort. However, it was a very narrow reform effort, ultimately. It was solely focused on keeping, quote-unquote, irrational drugs off the marketplace. But there were other drugs on the marketplace, and there was nobody controlling the, quote-unquote, irrational prescribing of appropriate drugs. And so it sort of shows us the limits between what reformers had been able to do and what reformers haven't been able to do which is really to have any type of 
uh, input on how I, as a practicing PCP, primary care physician, prescribe drugs. And that's been sort of the agenda of the last 50 years is what we now do to instill appropriate prescribing of seemingly appropriate drugs. And this is the current issue we're facing in healthcare surrounding antibiotic usage. The controlled clinical trial has allowed for rational therapies that are efficacious in killing bacteria. However, as Dr. Podolsky mentioned, the overprescription of antibiotics, which is influenced by patients requesting antibiotics, pharmaceutical marketing, and physician practices, is what could be deemed as irrational today. Studies have found that the indication for antimicrobial treatment, the choice of antimicrobial therapy, or the duration of treatment could be considered irrational or inappropriate in up to 30 to 50% of cases. I'm teaching right now a book by Harry Marks on the progress of experiments, a history of randomized controlled trials, and he has this term called, called shadow wars. And he was looking at how people, statisticians in the 50s were invoking the need for controlled clinical trials, and there was no overt resistance to that. People still just weren't doing it. It was sort of like a passive you know, avoidance of doing it. And there's a similar analogy, I think, to what's going on with, with antibiotics. So in the early 70s um, in the U.S., right after, so the FDA had taken this drug, Penalba, off the marketplace and all these fixed-dose combination antibiotics off the marketplace in 69, and prescribers were really, really upset about this. They thought, saw this as an assault on their therapeutic autonomy, and then they were being told that they were over-prescribing antibiotics. And... There were these, um, there was, the, the Medical Times in 1974 did this poll of like 10,000 family physicians and said, are you overprescribing antibiotics? And like half said, yeah, but half said no. And first of all, half responded, which is amazing. And of those, half said yes and half said no. And those who said no wrote these vehement replies. They're, it's awesome copy for anyone writing this history, saying, you know, those are just, you know, I'd like to see that ivory tower doc deal with somebody with mastoiditis. And there was, there was a real pushback saying, don't tell me how to prescribe drugs. You're not on the front lines like I am. I don't see that anymore. It was it was listened to by would-be reformers so that when people were constructing these reform efforts, they actually would say something like, docs don't want to hear from Washington about how they should be prescribing drugs. I don't see anything overt like that today. I haven't seen any physician write an article saying, I think we're actually underusing antibiotics in the United States. Nevertheless, people are still overprescribing antibiotics or using them in conditions when we think are not, quote-unquote, rational. So I think the overt resistance to it... Um, it's not so explicit. I just think it's the, um, again, the result of decades of practice uh, and, and, and expectation and, and fear. And I'm part of that. I mean, again, I have a patient coming in with sinus infection, and they've had it for seven days, and they have facial pain. And I know the data aren't great, but boy, I don't want to be the, I don't want this patient to develop some kind of a horrible abscess that I could have worse felt, even though I know that giving the antibiotics has its own risks. Um, it's, it, I, I empathize as someone on the front lines with anyone on the front lines dealing with this. Next week, we'll dive deeper into understanding antimicrobial resistance from both a historical standpoint and today. What are some changes that need to be enacted to change the trajectory we are currently on? You've been listening to Hashtag Health. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and you could have the chance to win an Amazon gift card. It's essentially free money. Also consider giving us a follow on Instagram and or Twitter and liking us on Facebook. This episode is brought to you by Mary Nguyen and me, your host, Sarah Howard.